The scripture this morning is Romans 8:28 through 39. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What, then, shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Dean. Two Saturdays in a row, we've had... Memorial services. Two Saturdays in a row, we rejoice together. It's, how do you? It's been great, but it has. And just the last week, the the church was full of flowers, and again this week, some call those sprays, right? Sprays, I think, of something like that. So, um, I think there's some out in the foyer as well. Beautiful. And I'm a detail guy. So, when my wife was telling me a story about our daughter today, I was thinking, I need to, I need to. (laughs) The, just one thing. Is that all right, hon? One thing. The, the officer didn't have a pump. He had a compressor. I could just see him out there. Now he hooked it up to the, you know, the cigarette lighter. Okay, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's right. If you know that part of the country... Um, she was on a sadist pass, and I don't know if you know anything 
between the Yakima Valley and you go over the top and you drop down the Columbia River that divides Oregon and Washington. So it really is. It's pretty desolate out there. Some of you know have been over Sadis before. I think she was still 20 miles out of Goldendale, which is a, a small town up there. This, this police officer is located in Vancouver, Washington. What's he doing out it's on Sadis Pass? Well, he told our daughter, it's been raining for days in Vancouver. I had to get out of the rain, so I came east. Well, I think God put his thumb in his back. Anyway, it really was. It was a miracle. Okay, lies and truth's clothing. Um, I, I, we're kind of dealing with things, some things that are just plain misunderstandings, some things that are obviously out and out lies, some things that are just, you know, the Scripture's been twisted a little bit to make it sound like something that's a little more palatable for us. Um, today we're talking about it. Well, here's the lie. Everything that happens is God's will. Everything that happens is God's will. So, this, this, um, this particular lie usually comes up in the midst of tragedy, a difficult time, a death or a loss, a breakup or a divorce. Um, have you ever had something bad happen to you and people came up to you with good intentions and they mean well, they're trying to be helpful and they say things like this, God must be up to something or, well, God doesn't make mistakes or you must be very special to God for tr to trust you with this or this is just a blessing in disguise. It's an essential part of God's great and wonderful plan for your life. And the words vary, but the message is almost always the same. Someday you'll be glad this happened. I've noticed that none of those people who are so quick to share those kind of platitudes with you are anxious to experience what you've just experienced when they tell you that. In one sense, they're on the right track, though. No matter what happens, we know God is in control. He is the king of the universe, and he is good. Yes, all the time. But that doesn't mean he's the direct cause of everything that happens. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is something that he wants to happen. And it certainly doesn't mean that everything that God allows is good. God did not cause Lucifer to rebel. He did not cause Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. He didn't cause David to sleep with Bathsheba. He didn't cause Cain to kill Abel. Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery or Peter to deny Jesus three times. He didn't coerce Ananias and Sapphira into lying about the property they sold or the crowd into stoning Stephen. Those who carried out these evil deeds bear full responsibility for their actions. They can't blame God. Adam tried. It didn't work. So, where did we come up with the notion that everything that happens is God's will? Well, like many lies, it comes from a twisted interpretation of a few key scriptures. In this case, the one that gets brought up more often than others is that verse, Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 has led many to draw the wrong conclusion. No other verse gets 
misquoted as often when it comes to trying to make sense out of life's trials in Romans 8.28. Christians and even non-Christians who have a nodding acquaintance with the Bible quote it more than all other verses combined. But Romans 8.28 doesn't say or mean what most people think it does. It doesn't even apply to a large percentage of those who turn to it for comfort. See, one of the sources of confusion may very well be that most folks who quote this, this verse, quoted in the King James translation. Now, this is not a knock on King James. My dad was a dyed-in-the-wool King Jameser. He wore, literally, my dad wore Bibles out. He did. He wore them out. He used them so often, he read them so much that the bindings would fall apart. They were taped together. They were... But in the King James Version, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Now remember that the King James Version was done in 1611 and written in what is known as Elizabethan or Shakespearean English. It might have been a clear translation in the early 1600s, but language changes. For instance, when I was a kid, the bomb was bad news. Uh, do, do, they, do young people still say something is the bomb and mean... In South Florida, when I started school, we used to have drills in class. It was during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we would crawl under our desk like that would do any good if they nuked you. <laughs> but that's what we did um, to prepare us in case the Russians dropped or the Cubans, whoever, dropped the bomb. Now it's high praise. You know, something good is the bomb. So language changes. A clear, more accurate translation for modern English is actually the NIV. Romans 8.28 reads this way, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Notice the difference. It doesn't say that everything that happens is good. It simply says that God is at work in all things for the good. And if you'll read the verse in context, especially in this chapter, you'll see it much more clearly. Now think about it. Think about the things mentioned in this chapter, the things that, that Dean read to us this morning. Uh, I mean, are these things good? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, 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 <laughs> nakedness, danger, sword. No, those aren't good things. We don't want those things in our lives. Paul's message is that no matter what happens, no bad thing that ever happens can divert God's love. He says that. None of these things can separate us from God's love. So those who pin every disease, financial disaster, and betrayal in the direction, uh, to the direct action of God are headed down a logically indefensible path. If these things are really, really an expression of God's goodness, they would have shown up in the Garden of Eden before the fall. And if these things are really an expression of God's goodness, they will surely play, play a prominent role in heaven. But we know none of those things will be present there, don't we? 
See, God's goodness and blessings will reign supreme there. So, see, there's something in Romans chapter 8 that a lot of people miss altogether. And first, it's, it's not a promise. This is it. It's not a promise for everyone. There's some conditions in this verse. It's not a promise to everyone. It's not even a promise to every Christian, and I'll expand on that just a little bit. See, it's a, it's a promise for a specific kind of person, one who meets important criteria. Number one, it's for someone who loves God. Number two, it's for someone who's been called according to his purpose. There's two conditions there. You have to love God. You have to be called according to his purpose. So, who is that? Well, based on what Jesus and the writers of the New Testament say, those who love God are those who obey his commands. Jesus says in John 14:15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And then John writes in 1 John 5, 3, this is love for God that you obey his commands. And then those who are called according to his purpose are those who have become followers of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9a. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of any, anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. So for the, for the promise to be met, we have to love God and we have to be called according to His purpose. And that leaves some people out. Doesn't it? It leaves people out. It leaves out the person you work with who has no interest in spiritual things, but just found out that their cancer has returned. God loves them, yes. God has a prefer, prefer, hmm, preferred future for them. Time out. Obviously didn't hydrate the way I should have this morning. God has a preferred future for them. Um, and uh, if, they re- if they come to Jesus, they can begin to live out that preferred future. But Romans 8.28 has nothing to say about their heartache if they're not followers of Jesus Christ. And these conditions also leave out the really nice guy who lives next door to you. Who you've been trying to witness to and you've been inviting him to church. He lost his job several months ago and may be facing foreclosure on his house. And when you tell him that God must have something better for him, it makes him and you feel better. But it's wishful thinking. God doesn't hold this promise forth to those who are not followers of Jesus, no matter how nice they are. You know, I think nice people are the hardest sons to win sometimes. Don't you? Because, hey, I'm a nice guy. God's, you know, I've got, I've got everything I need. It's, and trying to get, sometimes it's that person who, say is, you know, they, they recognize, boy, my life is messed up. It's, they tend to be sometimes a person who's a little more willing to open the door. But the nice guy? 
So they, you know, so these things you're thinking, well, that's kind of harsh. That, that, that surprises me what you've just said. But here's something else that might surprise you more. Some Christians are even left out of this promise. If you're living in deliberate disobedience to God in some area of your life, God doesn't promise that He's going to step up and fix the mess that your disobedience has created. I hate it when I have to deal with the consequences of my own bad decisions. Just like David and Bathsheba. Sure, David was forgiven. Sure, he used he was used by God to write Scripture after his sin. And yes, God brought some good out of their union in this amazing son named Solomon. But all in all, it would have been far better if David had never laid eyes on Bathsheba. Their firstborn died in infancy. David spent the rest of his life at war. His family was a dysfunctional mess none of which qualifies as God's wonderful plan for his life. The beauty and promise of Romans 8 is not that the bad things will eventually prove to be good things. The beauty and promise of this section of Romans 8 is that no matter how bad things may get, God ultimately and eternally, his ultimate and eternal purposes in the lives of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, will not be foiled. So we must avoid the blame game. Have you ever noticed that God gets blamed for a lot of bad things that happened and doesn't give much credit for good things that happened? Have you noticed that? I have. I hope that's only characteristic of non-believers. And not those who know Christ as Savior, but I, I'm afraid that may not always be the case. Doesn't it seem to you that we need someone to blame when life takes a bad turn? I mean, this has got to be somebody's fault. Well, every somebody except me. Even when the bad things that happen are the result of our own decisions or poor choices, it's got to be somebody's fault. You know, personal, personal responsibility is kind of at an all-time low. It really is. It's, it's never our fault. And when we run out of politicians or enemies or governments or financial institutions or teachers or administrators or bosses or pastors or parents or children or circumstances to blame, there's always God. We can lay it on Him. Surely it has to be His fault. And that's not to say that some of the aforementioned are not to blame at times for the difficulties that we may be going through. But it is to say that it's probably not God's will that it happened. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And that's a two-sided coin, really. Essentially, it means that bad things happen to good people and and bad people alike, and good things happen to bad people and good people alike. The prophet Jeremiah asked this question, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? The psalmist asked the same question at times. Why are, these, why are those happy who deal so treacherously? Do you think he might have been asking himself, Can it be that God's will that it's God's will that evil people are prosperous and happy? 
We want God to intervene when we're in trouble. You know, provide money. We all know. Provide, you're going to get a check in the mail when you need money. It's just that's how God's supposed to do it. Make us better when we are sick or injured. Protect us from harm. But when it comes to His control in our lives, we say, God, stay out of my business. I'll run my life the way I want to. In other words, God, get involved in my life when I ask you to, but otherwise, keep your nose out of my business. Because I want to run my life the way I want to run it. And when we say that, there are a lot of things that can happen that are not God's will, but rather a result of our own sinful and rebellious attitude. And those who assume that everything that happens has God's fingerprints all over it fail to distinguish what God allows and what God causes and between what God permits and what God prefers. The Bible clearly tells us that there are a number of situations where the dark trials of our lives have nothing at all to do with God's wonderful plans for our lives. Don't blame God. Sometimes the trials and hardships we face are the result of sinful choices. They're self-inflicted wounds. It's not God's doing, it's our doing. God created humans in His own image, capable of having and sustaining a personal relationship with Him. But to be really... To be really be made in His image, they have to be capable of freely loving Him and following His will without being forced. God did not want to create robots. So creatures who are free to love God must also be free to hate or ignore Him. I always thought, (laughs) what a tremendous risk God took when He made us that way without ability to choose. And, and when people act in ways that are outside the will of God, great evil and suffering can be the ultimate result. Sometimes bad things happen because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world cursed by sin. It's no coincidence that the first, the, the first event ever mentioned in the Bible after the fall of Adam and Eve is about a bad guy killing a good guy. That's what happens in a fallen world. Bad people do bad things and good people get hurt. Another byproduct of living in a fallen world is the, what we would call the wrath of Mother Nature. Earthquakes, floods, tornadoes and hurricanes. See, the, the universal impact of the fall is all around us. And as Christians, we're not insulated from those things. When it comes to the consequences of the fall, we aren't offered immunity, but we are offered eternity. Another reason that bad stuff happens is that sometimes we make foolish decisions. They're not necessarily sinful, they're just dumb. Guilty. And yeah, every one of us has done it. Either we've failed to check out our facts or we in some way put two and two together and got any number but four 
no matter how or why it happens, once we've made a bonehead decision, bad stuff can follow. Picking the wrong stock can wipe out your portfolio. Picking the wrong partner can destroy your business. Picking your nose can ruin your social status. <laughs> Have you ever been watching a sporting event when they pan the crowd? Somebody's... I bet they're thrilled to see that on television. But it's ludicrous to blame God or assume that he'll jump in and fix every dumb decision we make. <laughs> he gave us a brain for a reason. The message for us in this passage of Romans 8 is not that God promises to keep us from making dumb decisions or to fix whatever we break. The message is that he promised to continue working for our eternal good no matter how dim-witted our judgments may be along the way. <laughs> Thank you, God. So, sometimes there are under unintended consequences of this believing this lie. The belief that God is the direct cause of everything that happens and has a specific reason and blessing for it is not only untrue, it has the potential to produce great spiritual harm. Here are just a few of the most significant potential negative consequences. Number one, the first potential negative consequence is anger at God. When you blame God, when you blame everything on God, it leads to an unjustified anger at God. Well, look what happened to me. This is God's fault. Most of us can probably tell about someone we know who wants nothing to do with Jesus or Christianity primarily because of some injustice or great tragedy for which they blame God. And we hear that a lot. What kind of God would allow that to happen? Maybe you've been there yourself at some point. When we proclaim that God is the direct cause of everything that happens, then we hand the devil some powerful ammunition. His argument goes something like this. If God is responsible for your mess, he's obviously not very good or not very powerful. Why waste your time following a God like that? It's an accusation that rings true for many who have suffered, especially those saddled with a heavy burden of injustice or the oppressive weight of a major tragedy. Ironically, the, the core belief that fuels the, their bitterness is the same belief that gives comfort to those who see God's hand and blessing behind every tragedy. Both, group, both groups see God as directly responsible for that thing that happened in their lives. The difference is how they interpret what happens. The everything will eventually prove to be good crowd sees everything that happens in the light of their previous convictions about God's goodness. The, the God can't be trusted crowd judges God's goodness in light of what actually happened. It's not a surprise that they come to completely different conclusions. Another potential negative consequence is glossing over sin. 
Let's be honest. There's not much reason to fear sin or its consequences if everything comes out in the wash anyway. For example, people who defend their participation in an affair as part of God's plan because the new union resulted in a happy marriage. I don't know that I've encountered that before, but I have had, have had people tell me that it was God's will that they go their separate ways. Or people who claim that God must have orchestrated a bitter church split because it led to the birth of a, new, a dynamic new church. Yes, let's split this church and cause huge division. Larry Osborne tells about someone who claimed that God was behind a murder. And the subsequent conviction of the murderer was a good thing because the murderer met Jesus in prison. Let, let me see. God never approves of any kind of sin. So let's, let's, let's cause somebody to sin so this good thing will happen. God doesn't do that. Still another potential negative consequence is irresponsibility. When this particular lie is taken to an extreme, it can produce an epidemic of irresponsibility. After all, if God guarantees that everything will eventually work out for good no matter what, who cares what I put into the equation? God will fix it. He has to. He promised to. Sometimes this manifests itself in a pattern of ridiculous risk Taking that is labeled as steps of faith. These people say we're trusting in God, but basically what they do has nothing to do with following God's leading. God hasn't told them specifically to do anything, but like the fool in the book of Proverbs, they ignore all the warning signs of danger, the advice of good and wise friends, and keep on going in their pattern of risk-taking. And they're confident that if things don't work out, God will bail them out. I don't know if this really applies, but we met a young man one time who was in the risk-taking business. He was a, he climbed, he was a rock climber. He, was, he climbed ro- frozen waterfalls. He'd injured himself pretty severely a few times, and... There's a point in life where God came to him and said, Listen, you need to quit doing this. You're not going to be able to do what I want you to do if you're all busted up. And so you need to quit. And he listened and he quit. So when, when we have these risk takers and they get themselves in a bind and when God doesn't rescue them, they get mad at God. It's not God's fault. It was their fault because they ignored the warning signs along the way. Listen, folks. The only place where God's will is perfectly carried out is in heaven. And in heaven there is no sin, no disease, no brokenness, no no nakedness, no famine, no, no sword. James Crawford said, The power of God does not lie in protecting you from failure, frustration, tragedy, or death. 
The power of God lies in taking the worst life can do to us and transforming it into a new, deeper, and more profound reality and relationship. Rick Warren said, God specializes in bringing good out of bad. He uses problems to inspect us, direct us, correct us, perfect us, and even protect us. I I think part of our problem is, what do we interpret as good? I think God's view of good is very different than ours sometimes. I think we're, we're thinking richer, healthier, happier. That's another one we're going to deal with is God wants us to be happy all the time. Pastor and author Tim Keller gives us some insight. He points to the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus is standing there with tears rolling down his face. Jesus isn't smiling. He's angry. He's upset. Why? Because death is a bad thing. Keller says Jesus wasn't thinking. They think that this is a tragedy, but no harm done. I'm about to raise him from the dead. This looks like a bad thing, but it's not. It's really a good thing. It's, it's a way for me to show my glory. Keller points out that there's no place in the Bible that teaches us that bad things are really a blessing in disguise or that every cloud is a silver lining. Jesus is upset because he hates death. He hates loneliness, alienation, pain, and suffering. But Keller says Jesus hates it all so much that he is willing to come into this world and experience it all himself so that eventually he could destroy it, death, without destroying us. And and finally he says this, Jesus Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, you'll become like him. God hasn't promised that everything that happens to us in this life will work out. But he has promised that no matter what happens, he will never leave us or forsake us. He's also promised us in this section on Romans chapter 8, that no matter what life or the enemy might throw at us, his good and eternal purposes cannot be thwarted. That's the good, folks. That's the good. We're going to uh, share together in communion at this time. And uh, if those who 